You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. because it really is interesting and it really is important. And that's going to be, did society begin with monotheism as it were? When we look back at what our most primitive ancestors believed, were they monotheists? And my guest can tell me if I phrase that terribly or not, but my guest is Dr. Winfred Corzuin. He was born in 1949 in Hamburg, Germany, and in 63 he moved to the U.S. In 1970 he got a a B.S. in Zoology at the University of Maryland. He went on to earn a Master's in Philosophy of Religion at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and got a Ph.D. in Religious Studies at Rice Universities. From 77 to 2008, he was a Professor of Philosophy and Religion at Taylor University, and he retired on disability in 2008 as Emeritus Professor of Philosophy and Religion. He is a writer of books like Neighboring Faiths, No Doubt About It, and the one we're talking about today, In the Beginning, God, and he and I have actually worked together at one of Paul Jack's conference, at least. So, uh, Dr. Corjan, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hi, Nick. It's really good to be here. Please mm-hmm. call me Wynn. Anybody, sure. Everybody does, and sure. that makes it a little bit less formal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, you, qu- you phrased the question pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't like to use the word primitive these right. days mm-hmm. to refer to people who don't have the same sophistication of technology as we do, but in order to talk about the topic, you have to refer to 18th, 19th century sources, rather, and there the word primitive is being mm-hmm. used all the time, as well as words that we definitely want to avoid, like savages, Oh yes, <laughs> or barbarians, mm-hmm. or whatever. But the question that I talk about in that book is basically... Were the first humans believers in one single God who created the universe and has certain expectations of human beings? Or did religion begin uh, along with uh, other cultural developments, uh, first with belief in magic and spirits and ghosts, and then from there going to gods and deities and... uh, and a hierarchy of gods, and finally one god achieved the status of being uh, mm-hmm. the big one god. And my answer is, of course, of those two, that uh, I believe there is good evidence that uh, religion began with belief in a single god and worship of him alone. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Corjan, <clears throat> this point, though, before we really get into the book, just in case, if people might not know who you are, could you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing, and maybe in particular, how you got into this field of what 
the original men believe? Because it really isn't one we hear talked about a lot. Well, it isn't uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, I got intrigued by it first when I was still in Germany. Okay, I was born in Hamburg, Germany. Mm-hmm. I was 13 years old when we came over to the United States. And uh, in Germany at the time, they still had religion as a subject in the high schools, gymnasium. And uh, we were divided into Protestant and Catholic in my class. And one day the Protestant teacher was absent and we had the Catholic teacher. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was sitting there as a little Baptist in a world that was mostly either Catholic or Lutheran, having my defenses ready. And he started to talk about these people who lived in the jungle and uh, in the desert and so forth. And uh, people have visited them, and at first you think they only worship spirits or they don't have any religion at all. But if you really get to know them, you find out that they actually believe in God, in a single God. And uh, that I found that just totally intriguing. And uh, then when I was in college... I ran a book, read a book by Robert Brow uh, about the origin of religion and the nature of religion, and he made reference to that phenomenon as well. So, you know, it was something that I was carrying in my mind that I was intrigued by, but really didn't have anything specific to go on, and uh, I really did not get uh, really into depth on that until I began to study world religions. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to understand that right through my PhD, I was really not all that interested in world religions. Now, I had to take some courses in that subject at Rice, but my dissertation was on Hegel and uh, Karl Rahner, the Uh, 20th century Jesuit theologian so uh, that's the way that I was thinking I was pointed that's the subject matter that I pursued the intersection of uh, religion and theology with philosophy but when it came to finding a job at Taylor University I had a somewhat awkward job description. My teaching was supposed to be supposed to include the courses like uh, New Testament survey, various philosophy courses like history and philosophy of philosophy and uh, logic and world religions. And I had never thought that I would teach world religions. But that was my weakest course in terms of knowing the subject matter. So that's the course that I wound up putting the most effort into, bringing up to par. And I realized that I was getting along pretty well and the Lord was using what I was learning. And so I began to focus on that subject more and more. 
until it really became my specialty, as it were. I learned from Arabic, from Sanskrit, I was privileged to take a lot of trips to visit various places with the indigenous religions. And lo and behold, you could not really get through that subject matter without also uh, smashing up against the question of how did religion originate? I mean, very few people nowadays, very few academics would actually defend a theory of evolution for religion, but mm -hmm. almost all of them mm -hmm. assume it. Mm -hmm. They just think, you know, it's, that's just a given that monotheism could not possibly have been the beginning point. So I uh, studied more and uh, uh, started to read Wilhelm Schmidt, the German uh, scholar who wrote academically in defense of the biblical view, namely that everything started with God. Mm -hmm. And I realized that not only did he have some good reasons for what he was advocating, but uh, those reasons were virtually ignored by most people. And even people who tried to follow him and accepted what his conclusions weren't necessarily following his argument and his specific line of argumentation, the method that he used, and uh, consequently their argument was not as powerful as it could be. Mm -hmm. So this whole business is part of my development as a scholar, going where I never thought I would go, mm -hmm. and uh, then uh, you know, I made reference to original monotheism in several of my earlier writings and then an editor at Broaden Holman asked me if I wouldn't want to write a whole book about it now you would have thought that I would have jumped at the chance immediately but I really had to think about that for a minute because I realized if I really wanted to do an in-depth work on that topic I had to retool as it were because I had to not only speak from a philosophical point of view and the history of religions, I had to deal with anthropology and uh, ethnography and those fields. And so I, I really had to do a lot more study if I wanted to, uh, to write a whole book on it. And well, in the end I did. And I must say, if it wasn't for Google Books and <laughs> some other research tools, I could not have brought it off. As it stands, the, uh, we now have access to journals that 20 years ago I would not have had a prayer of finding anywhere. Mm -hmm. The Proceedings of the Anthropological Society in London. I, I, I'm quite sure they don't have that in Alexandria Public Library. Mm. <laughs> I you know, wouldn't know. Maybe they would have it in uh, Indiana University, three hours from here. 
or at Michigan, uh, U of M, Michigan, in Ann Arbor, four and a half hours from here. But I wouldn't even know that. But thanks to the internet and all the resources that we have, uh, research really became uh, accessible. Right. And uh, I want to tie that little piece of information to asking other folks who are interested to go and look up those journals. Uh, the information is there, and uh, you know, we can go on from what little I may have contributed mm -hmm. to uh, really exploring the subject matter again and looking at the interpretations that people gave to various discoveries, whether they're right or not. Well, I wanted to say before we also got into that, that whenever I do a write-up of a show on Thursday, that's coming up on Saturday, I go and I post it online, and I was very surprised, I'm sure you'll be honored and humbled, to hear so many people are so excited about this interview, and so many of them had heard about your book, you know, or they had read it, or were getting ready to read it, and I remember one person who shared it was someone who has been on the show before, one of your former students, Marsha Montenegro, mm -hmm. and she spoke very highly of you, so you have a lot of fans out there. Well, thank you, thank you. It, it really is humbling, Nick. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to tell you, you know, I get emails from time to time from people that I have never met saying, I just read your, say, my apologetics textbook, No Doubt About It, or whatever, saying, you know, the Lord has really used it in my life. And, you know, even just as I'm talking about that here, I'm sitting here, I'm getting goosebumps. Oh, yeah. And it's just mm -hmm. so, so weird and so exciting to be making that kind of contribution. And... Uh, for me, at least, that feeling has never gone away, and I trust it never will. One thing, one of my one thing, my current pastor told me to do, and I've started doing it. He said, "Is keep a folder on your computer, or cards like encouragement, and when you get a good email or a message on Facebook or something like that, put it in that folder. And later on, when you're discouraged about things, go look in that folder and think back about the difference you got to make with the kingdom. And it really is incredible to do that." Great, yeah. And by the way, I assume you're keeping a good archive of your blog, mm -hmm. because uh, that's going to be valuable for a long time to come. Yeah, I I greatly appreciate that. Let's the, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, what people are going to be interested in a hundred years from now is not what academicians repeat it when they were citing people who said the same thing 50 years ago but it's what people who were on some kind of cutting edge said some you know people who made a difference mm -hmm. people who faithfully say kept the blog or mm -hmm. went out on a limb with their writings uh, coming up with new ideas for creative without violating orthodoxy and so mm -hmm. yeah I think uh, as always history the history of the early 21st century will look very different a hundred years from now than it does to us mm -hmm. 
when when we're looking at this topic here, when we talk about original monotheism, and let, let's clarify what the term means. I mean, from a Christian perspective, we don't mean these people were teaching the Trinity right from the start, and also we don't mean something like these people would have understood Aquinas' Summa Theologica and had a, a deep theology of God being omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, etc., etc. And what do we mean by saying original monotheism? Okay. Uh, let me let me talk a little didactically here and uh, uh, number my statements as it were. Number one, we are assuming an origin of human beings. Mm-hmm. A single one-time origin of human beings. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, as Christians, or if we were Muslims, we would believe that that uh, occurred at the time when God created people. But even if we don't have any particular religious convictions, nowadays a consensus is swelling in anthropology that human beings, that is, Homo sapiens, did not evolve from Neanderthal, Mm -hmm. and that they had a single place of origin somewhere in or around Africa, and uh, there doesn't seem to be any direct connection to any of the other fossilized, uh, fossilized remains of uh, the so-called pre-human hominids or anthropoids and so on. So, uh, regardless of uh, where you come from, there's one point of origin. Uh, let me just uh, clarify here, this is not something that uh, anthropologists have held for a long time uh, back during the time when Wilhelm Schmidt worked, uh, the idea was still that human beings, Homo sapiens, evolved separately in different parts of the world from different pre-human ancestors. And (laughs) biologically, I find that uh, highly questionable but that's not the norm anymore. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, when uh, Homo sapiens came into being, did they originally have a religion? And if so, what power did they worship venerate, revere, and so forth, what was at the core of whatever we want to call their religion. Okay, now, by monotheism, we mean that these people, the original humans, recognized that there was only one God, as opposed to spirits and magic forces and so forth, and we can get into that later. Mm. But uh, they recognized that there was one God and this one God they worshipped and then uh, other developments in religion were 
incidence of decay from that original monotheism. Mm-hmm. Now, how did they come to believe in that God? Well, we can say, of course, that God revealed himself, but uh, we don't want to make that a premise right. because that, that would not be shared. Even though Wilhelm Schmidt wound up making it a conclusion mm-hmm. on the basis of the anthropological evidence, but uh, we can save that for later. The basic thing is to recognize that belief in God is not this high and lofty and complex system that only someone with a Harvard education in the 19th century would have been able to arrive at, but it is the absolutely simplest form of belief. You look around Mm -hmm. and see the world and you ask, who made this? Mm -hmm. And a child of three or four can already ask that. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that our earliest forebears had no more understanding or intelligence than a child of three or four, but the belief in God does not actually rest on profound premises. Somebody must have made this. Mm -hmm. Somebody must have made the world, and even though they would not phrase their awareness in the way that St. Thomas Aquinas would, Actually, in many ways, it is the cosmological argument. Mm -hmm. And they did conclude that the God who made the world must have been eternal. Mm -hmm. He he couldn't have made himself. That doesn't make any sense. So he must have always existed and will always exist. Mm -hmm. They did believe that he knew everything and new people's thoughts. They did believe that he was everywhere. Mm-hmm. They did associate him with ethical expectations. That is, fidelity, fidelity in marriage, uh, telling the truth, not killing needlessly. Ten Commandments type stuff. Yeah, more or less. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's... uh, Now, we need to talk about the evidence for all of that, of course, Mm -hmm. but that's that's the conclusion, and that's what we mean by original monotheism. Mm -hmm. It's uh, really uh, not just uh, an intuition that, well, somehow, somewhere, something must be God, or the idea that there is a hidden God beyond the sky, or Mm -hmm. that people first worshipped the sky, and then they said the sky was God, but that they began with the very reasonable inference that looking at life and their experience of the world, there must have been a God who created it. Well, before we get into the evidence, I, I would like to clarify that a little bit more. In fact, when we say they believed in one God, that doesn't mean they believed God was the only 
spirit being, as it were, occurs. Christians, Jews, and Muslims would all identify as monotheists today, and yet they believe in creatures like angels, and uh, Muslims call them jinn, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that we're not saying that they believe God was the only spiritual being. There could have been lesser spiritual beings around, right? That is absolutely correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, I can think of some cultures where one could almost go either way and say, well, we could call them monotheists, but uh, maybe not. I mean, for Orthodox, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Zoroastrianism, you know, there's no question but that they are monotheists. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that, as you say, that they are other spirits, but we don't worship them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we know that they are just creatures. Mm-hmm. Then there are other cultures where it's very clear that uh, these folks basically focus on uh Spirits, mm-hmm. ancestor spirits, nature spirits, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But many of them also believe in a creator God. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that they do not pay much attention to him. Mm-hmm. And so a really good example is the Kikuyu of Kenya. Mm-hmm. Kikuyu are a dominant tribe in Kenya, the agricultural, and uh, they basically, on a day-to-day basis, venerate the spirits, particular ancestor spirits, and uh, they may go for months, even years, without paying all that much attention to a high god, who's called Engai, Mm -hmm. but during a period of distress, if there's a drought or an epidemic or something like that, then the entire village may assemble under a specially designated holy tree and they will together call on Engai. Then when I say the whole community, that includes the living people as well as the living dead, the so-called ancestors, and they're all there calling on Engai to help. And uh, when the outcome has been settled, then they don't pay much attention to Engai any longer. Mm-hmm. Now, I would not call that culture really monotheistic, mm-hmm. but uh, some other people do. And uh, some people say, well, they're monotheists, but aren't aware of it. Mm -hmm. And I find that a little peculiar. But so, uh, you're right. Uh, Monotheism does not exclude by any means the uh, reality of other spiritual beings that are creatures of Mm -hmm. the one God. But it does mean that the one God is the one who is being worshipped and uh, the, uh, the spirits and uh, ghosts and so forth are not given that 
kind of consideration. You know, when you were talking about this tribe where they live their lives, they don't think much about the one supreme God, and then when a drought or some sort of disaster comes, all of a sudden they remember him. I, I was just hearing this, and I was saying, gosh, it's a good thing we're beyond those kinds of days, and we don't have people anymore who know there is one supreme God and only acknowledge him when they really need some help from something. I mean, it, it, it's so good we're past that, isn't it? Yeah, right, yes. You're always at your best when you sneak in a little bit of sarcasm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. you know, most... Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, I don't want to say most. No, 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 no. But many people live as practical atheists mm-hmm. and uh, then are monotheists only for pragmatic reasons. Mm-hmm. We, we call and, it more uh, therapeutic deism today. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, um, when, when we're talking about the evidence for this, I can hear some people out there would probably be pretty skeptical and say, you know, when we're studying something like the historical Jesus, which is my main area, we're looking at documents that come from about 2,000 years ago, and it's hard enough to piece together what the people mm-hmm. believed back then. But we're supposed to piece together what people believed thousands or ten thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of years ago without any documents. I mean, they, they didn't write things down back then. How are we supposed to get at what they really believed? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, let me ask you this, and then I'll drop it and get into the actual subject matter, you open a drawer in your kitchen and you find two forks there. Mm -hmm. One is bright and shiny. The other one, the the tine, uh, are straight and rusted and there's a handle on that fork which is wobbling. Mm-hmm. And are you going to have a hard time deciding which one is the older one? No. The, even though they don't come with written certificates. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, <laughs> I want to say it's not rocket science. Um, the method by itself it really is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. But you have to be willing to follow the method. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to take several steps back in time and go back to Tyler, Mm -hmm. who was uh, the leading advocate of the evolution of religion. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a master of details and uh, he he compiled information about different uh, cultures from all over the world and he saw a lot of animism there's belief in spirits and uh, veneration of spirits and uh, he associated those particularly with cultures that were materially and in other aspects not very well developed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I mean, we 
I think without committing ourselves to a theory of the evolution of human culture, would all agree that we have made <laughs> some kind of a change, and we may or may not want to call it progress, mm -hmm. from working with stone tools to uh, uh, working with computers. Right. Okay. So, uh, I'm, you know, we're not denigrating anyone or calling them primitive or whatever, just by saying that there are cultures that uh, are materially more or less developed. Mm-hmm in contrast to our hyper-developed culture. Right. So, uh, he then made that correlation between less advanced cultures, the ones that he would have called primitive, and animism, simple belief in spirits that can be controlled by magic and by uh, making offerings to them, bribing them, as it were. And uh, you know, that was the starting point of religion. And then he documented how that is found all over the world. And uh, so that, that was basically his method. And uh, a very important aspect of his method was that if a phenomenon is found under many different circumstances at many different times, then you have all the more reason to believe that a hypothesis concerning it is true uh, than if you only find it once or twice. Mm -hmm. Let me clarify that. Let's say you want to... Uh, to make a definitive study about the musical preference of duck-billed platypi or duck-billed platypuses and uh, so you go to Australia and find one duck-billed platypus and you're able to converse with him like Dr. Doolittle and you ask him what kind of music do you like best and he says Mozart and so you write an article in an important journal that uh, states that uh, the musical preference of duck-billed platypi is classical music, particularly the compositions of Mozart. Okay, that's very little evidence to go on. Mm -hmm. But if you study duck-billed platypi in different parts of the world, if they existed, and ones of you know, different color, red, green, purple, speckled, duck-billed platypi and asked all of them which kind of music do you prefer and they all say Mozart then you'd have a much stronger basis for your hypothesis that duck-billed platypi prefer classical music particularly Mozart okay mm -hmm. yeah so that was that was E.B. Tyler's logic mm -hmm. here we have all of these so-called primitive cultures, and they all have animism for a religion. Mm -hmm. So, the, uh, the the scientific scholarly world pretty much went along with him, and one of his uh, 
biggest advocates and disciples was the Scottish thinker uh, Andrew Lang. Mm-hmm. Now, Lang came across the conclusions, uh, I'm sorry, the data of an Australian anthropologist named Howitt. Mm-hmm. And Howitt had uh, compiled a research list that described uh, in many Australian tribes their religion focused only on one god. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Lang started to pursue that. Now, Lang did not actually work out in the field as Howard did, but he used Howard's data. And uh, the more he studied it, the more he realized that the, those Australian tribes that were very much on the lowest level of material sophistication actually held to okay now for Lang either a monotheism they only believed in one god or they were animists without much consciousness of a god at all Um, Before you go on a little bit, in case someone doesn't know, could you explain what animism is exactly? Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Animism is the belief that there are spirits everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, you know, there may be spirits in trees and plants and in lakes and so forth, dryads and Mm -hmm. uh, so forth. Uh, There may be spirits that uh, dwell in houses and the like. Now, spirits are not gods, so they they don't have the power or knowledge that a god has, but uh, they have certain advantages on us because they are uh, invisible, and so they know some things that we don't, but then we also know some things that they do. And an important class of spirits are the so-called ancestor spirits. Mm-hmm. Now I'm saying so-called because it's really uh, not necessary to have had descendants, direct descendants. Like if you have an unmarried uncle with no children, and when he passes away, uh, you may still consider him one of those spirits. Uh, and you know we can call him an ancestor of spirits even though very technically he's not an ancestor of anyone but uh, so uh, animism occupies itself with uh, uh, respecting the spirits venerating them uh, entertaining them uh, informing them of things in your life or major changes in your life uh, Ancestor spirits never like to be surprised, and uh, you keep them involved in the community, as it were, 
and usually they are venerated in some way through however many generations still had some direct knowledge of the person and then in most cases uh, as his direct memory has faded away so he is he or she is considered to be gone so uh, and uh, animism is spirit directed religion comes from the Latin word anima for the soul so then when we look at Andrew Lang he said these cultures they are either monotheistic meaning they believe in one god or they're animistic meaning there are just many many spirits out there right right yeah and now he he had his opinion namely that he could see how uh, you could believe in one God and then fall away from that belief and turn to animism because if you have if you believe in one God who doesn't need to be appeased because he already loves his creatures and who will not do what you want him to just because you ask him to uh, people are impatient they want uh, a more direct involvement in getting the spirit world to do what you want them to and it can turn into lucrative business mm -hmm. if uh, you become a shaman who claims that he has a special relationship to the spirits so Lang said okay we can understand how theism or monotheism can turn into animism it's really not easy if at all possible to envision how an animistic culture could become monotheistic without going through all of Tyler's stages animism to polytheism and so forth which are definitely not found in those tribes so uh, Lang preferred that uh, the, the theory that said monotheism came before animism but he really did not have enough data or a good enough method at his fingers in order to prove that monotheism was younger than uh, it was I'm sorry was older than animism now one thing we should state also is Andrew Lang wasn't a Christian was he no right. he was uh, a spiritist mm-hmm and in fact his his book his major book the making of religion uh the first half or so of it is a compilation of various psychic events that he claims to have been true and uh, his whole point in saying that is that modern science quote of his day was being biased by just writing off supernatural events 
and supernatural realities. And so he went from there to uh, to saying, now, if science were open-minded, then they would recognize that many people, a long, long time ago, actually, already believed in a single creator God. But, uh, as you said, he's, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, he said uh, there was remarkable similarity between the gods of the Australian Aborigines and the gods of and, and Jehovah of the Bible but then he, he says he actually preferred the Australian Aboriginal conceptions of God rather than the God of the Bible well once again though it, it's so glad good to know that uh, science has really moved on past that state where we're no longer a place where theistic ideas and such are considered out of bounds and we're all so open-minded to these kinds of evidence it's wonderful things have changed isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah you know I was just thinking this morning if uh, leaving God and the supernatural, so-called, the spiritual world, is a prerequisite for doing, quote, natural science. Mm -hmm. As so many people say, it's a heuristic stipulation. Then maybe natural science, in that sense, just isn't possible. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I don't, it seems a strange thing to say, and I don't you know, I'm not asserting that dogmatically, but it it certainly is getting silly at times the way that scientists close themselves off and really live, many of them, in a totally dichotomous world where they are Christians on one part of their life and uh, become you know, functional atheists for all practical purposes when it mm -hmm. comes to their science. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe that's good science, but it's certainly not good thinking and good mm -hmm. knowledge. Now, after we move past Andrew Lang, though, that gets mm -hmm. us to Wilhelm Schmidt, doesn't it? Yeah, more or less. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can't have Schmidt without having uh, some of his predecessors in using the method that he bought into, which we're calling the cultural historical method. Mm -hmm. Now, as I said, uh, Lang had no way of deciding which of the various cultures actually represented the least changed culture mm -hmm. from uh, the origin of humanity. Mm -hmm. you know, as you said, they don't come with uh, little tags, uh, uh, whatever. You know, this particular culture represents developments made 20,000 years ago or whatever. So, 
And this is really important in understanding Wilhelm Schmidt, that he accepted the method that was basically put together by a man named Fritz Grabner, G-R-A-E-B-N-E-R, a German, that undertook to classify various cultures in terms of which had newer modifications, which had that were newer and later developments and which seem to have been least developed and have made the least progress in their material culture so that you could actually set up a timetable as it were not an absolute one but a relative one mm -hmm. uh, now again Grebner was not a Christian as far as I know uh, I don't know if he had any uh, cultural Christianity but I but in terms of his work he did not believe in original monotheism he believed uh, that there was some kind of uh, impersonal magic at the beginning of human culture so uh, I'm saying that in order to to make it clear that Schmidt did not uh, just come up with his own religious intuitions but uh, he he was working with the same methodology as some of his colleagues in uh, the academic world mm -hmm. no. but uh, no, when you Please. yeah, one thing I was also thinking that we should say is that people might be thinking, well, Lang made this impact, and Schmidt came along and followed it, but uh, in reality, Lang was pretty much ignored in his time, also, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, some people paid attention to him enough to have generated some very interesting. Uh, correspondence and a few reviews and so forth, but for the most part, Lang was not a part of the establishment. Uh, he was a writer, best known for his collections of fairy tales, uh, and uh, oh, he, he wrote on many different subjects, and uh, he, he was certainly a serious scholar, but uh, the easiest way to deal with his conclusions was to just ignore them and go on with uh, whatever other speculations you might have. And besides, as I said, Lang was not able to uh, come to a definitive conclusion about uh, whether monotheism really was first or not. And he himself uh, did not maintain uh, uh, he, he continued with his beliefs along that line, but uh, you know, he moved on to other subjects in terms of his studies and uh, publications. So it, Lang's work was not exactly a bomb dropped into the 
university culture of Europe, nor for that matter it was Schmitz. Uh, okay, so we are making the correlation that the least developed cultures now represent the cultures that have departed the least from the original culture of human beings. And that by looking at these cultures, it is possible to make a relative judgment on which culture probably, in terms of their development, was older than another culture. Or if you're looking at a geographical region, which culture <clears throat> may have been there first and then the region was subsequently invaded by some other culture and you can uh, look for marks of of these two cultures which one was the earlier one and which one uh, were the ones that uh, came later mm -hmm. now uh, you know, go back to the two forks it's not always all that hard to decide which culture was probably earlier. Now, let me, if I may, uh, <coughs> stress this point. Most people, including myself, uh, up to a certain point, who have uh, respect for or accept Schmidt's conclusion have not really come to terms with his method. And more often than not, they think in terms of cumulative evidence, that there are so many tribes that have a belief in a single God that therefore monotheism must have come earlier. Well, that doesn't really follow. I mean, that's you're basically uh, E.B. Tyler's methodology. And uh, you, know, you can count. Okay, here are so many monotheistic cultures. Here are so many animistic cultures. Now, which of which are there more and then decide whoever has the majority uh, somehow must be the original culture. And that's just silly. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, many critics and uh, as well as supporters of the culture historical method have gone that route. And that simply does not, you know, does not work. I mean, it's good. And uh, you, know, you have a book like uh, Eternity in the Hearts by Don Richardson, you, know, you can have a lot of anecdotal evidence of monotheistic cultures and cultures that were waiting for a redeemer and so forth. But from a scholarly point of view, uh, unless you can establish some kind of relative chronology, 
and uh, sort out what is and what is not good evidence. Uh, it's really not going to take you very far. Uh, it's inspirational and good, but you gotta have this method. You know, so one one example I'm thinking of right now is that before Christianity came along, most of the world was in paganism. Then you look at Europe, that area, say the fourth or fifth century, you'll find, ah, it's Christian. But then you look a few centuries later, after the Muslims have sh- have shown up and they've gone through conquering, there are so many Muslim countries there. You wouldn't look and say, hmm, Islam must be the oldest religion because look at how many people are believing it. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a proper analogy or? A proper ana- analogy for the mistaken theory? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. kind of like saying mm-hmm. that whatever they, they, they believe at the time that it's so widespread, it must be the oldest one. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and that just doesn't work. Uh, no, let me just uh, throw out a few trivial examples, mm-hmm. a little bit less trivial than the fork, but uh, just as a matter of uh, sheer common sense. Say you have two tribes, and one has a, a very complex initiation rite, which involves tattooing all over the body, and the other one does not. Mm-hmm. Now, one assumes that human beings, when they first came on the scene, did not immediately start tattooing themselves and then later on gave up on the practice. Okay. Or, uh, so again, it, you know, it, some things are just uh, pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. So you have different cultures and they have different forms. Now, by by culture, I mean everything that goes beyond what you need for sheer survival. Mm -hmm. Or even what you are using for survival. So, uh, you have maybe one culture where the people fight each other with sticks that they broke off from trees. Mm-hmm. You have another culture where people take those sticks and peel them and put a point on them. And then you have a third culture, maybe in the same area, that takes those sticks and mounts uh, sharp flint uh, spear points on their sticks. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one would assume, all other things being equal, that the first culture is the least developed. Mm-hmm. People did not go from spears with uh, flint heads to uh, just using sticks. And uh, that Consequently, that culture represents an earlier culture of humanity. 
So that would be one so-called form. What kind of weapons do they use? What kind of pottery do they have, if they do at all? Mm-hmm. How do they live? Is it a mere subsistence by hunting, hunting, gathering, and so forth? Or do they uh, engage in agriculture or uh, keep uh, cattle and that kind of a thing? Uh, then uh, you have uh, immaterial cultural forms as well. Uh, stories, myths, mm-hmm. and so forth uh, that have possibly an original form and then get changed after a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you uh, you do have to count somewhere along the line. I mean, um, a few minutes ago we said you can't do it just by counting, but somewhere along you have to count You know how widespread is uh, a particular cultural form. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, you have to also look at how uh, how deeply is a particular cultural form embedded in a culture? Mm-hmm. Is it something that uh, seems to be the focus of their existence, or is it just something that they've picked up uh, and uh, have added on to what originally was there. Mm-hmm. Now, I need to add another factor. Okay. That cultures move in two ways. Mm-hmm. At least two ways. One, people migrate. Mm-hmm. Okay. I said a while back that at this point uh, there's a consensus building at least that human beings had a single origin at some time in the past and uh, considering the fact that there are human beings all over the globe now they obviously migrated Mm -hmm. they moved and uh, probably not just because they were adventurous and were getting bored with where they were, but uh, there was a certain amount of pressure on them to move and to migrate. And chances are that the cultures with (laughs) better weapons a greater ability to survive and make the best of the environment and so forth pushed the less developed cultures out of whatever regions they may have occupied into areas that were just barely habitable. Mm -hmm. And so Unsurprisingly, as Schmidt was applying this methodology, he found that the least developed cultures were 
Exactly. That was it. You expect to be in the least habitable places on Earth, and they are just barely on the brink of survival. Uh -huh. Or I should say were, because uh, many of them have not survived over the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that became what he called the, quote, primitive culture circles. Mm -hmm. The cultures that were pushed by more developed ones and uh, by the time the anthropologists found them, they were living in the Australian desert, in Tierra del Fuego, in the Kalahari, uh, in various places uh, on, around the North Pole in Greenland, and so forth, and various places that people would not choose to live just on their own. And of course, they have adapted themselves to their environment, but their culture is still a very basic uh, hunting, gathering economy. Mm -hmm. And even if you look at, say, the various tribes in Australia, you can tell which are the ones that are less developed than others. And so it's not just a toss-up, as Andrew Lang was afraid it might have been, but you can separate the cultures that, say, have, uh, as I mentioned earlier, complex initiation ceremonies and cultures that don't have much ritual nor much magic and uh, don't engage in, in a lot of uh, oh, uh, mutilation and uh, other practices. Hmm. You can tell which one apparently is less changed than the others. And then his conclusion was that those cultures that were on the margin, that had apparently developed least away from the most basic human culture were also the ones that believed in a single god and worshipped him. We're at this point, so a little bit past halfway point, like everyone know that this is the Deeper Worlds podcast. Right now, my guest is Dr. Winford Cordrin, who prefers I call him Win. We're talking about his book, In the Beginning, God, The Case for Original Monotheism. But if you're here next week, I'm going to have Andy Bannister on from RZIM in Canada. We're going to be talking about a book he's come out with lately called The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. It's certainly a very amusing read, and I hope you'll be here next week when we talk about it. But for now, let's get back to Win talking about In the Beginning, God. Now, you said Schmidt looked at these cultures and said these cultures did believe in one high God, but did they have any evidence for that? Because a lot of people think we're saying, 
where of course Schmidt's going to say that he's a Catholic. Of course he's going to go with a monotheistic answer. Well, <laughs> yeah, and this was a, a thorn in his side all of his life. Mm. But, uh, you know, his he had several reactions to that. Uh, a lot of times he would say, look, you're just bigoted. You haven't even you know, read my book. You're just dismissing it or whatever. And uh, other times he would say, well, show me where. Mm-hmm. I have mishandled the evidence. Please point out to me where I am not relying on evidence, but letting my Catholic prejudices, my, my Christian presuppositions, determine the conclusion for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think there is any such place. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, as I said earlier, I mean, Schmidt certainly became better known than Lang, but he always came with that asterisk of, you know, now serious scholars are of course not going to accept the conclusion of a Catholic monastic priest who's just trying to make an apologetic for Christianity. Once, once again, you know, it, it's it's very good to know we've gotten past those days also of uh, scholars being rejected because of their biases and the fear of being accused of that kind of thing. It, it, it's, it's amazing how much has changed, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but, you know, it... Uh, I, I don't have a persecution complex on those things. Right. I, or at least I try to avoid having one, and I don't think I do. I, I have to tell myself that if I am really convinced that A, there cannot be such a thing as God, or B, if there were such a thing as God, I could not live my life the way that I want to, I really wouldn't have a choice, uh, and uh, it wouldn't be so much a breach of integrity, but my personal integrity would tell me that I cannot accept Schmidt's conclusions. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, I think that's a little dubious, and uh, shouldn't have that those kinds of thoughts shouldn't have much scientific standing but you know what are you going to do if you are an anthropologist uh, working in they say 1930s pursuing a lifestyle that is not compatible with uh, a religious belief as taught in the Bible, or for that matter, other scriptures. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're just not going to. Uh, you're, you're just you're intellectually not going to be able to just endorse the idea that uh, monotheism is at the bottom of human religion and human religious culture, and they're really intertwined. So, yeah, (laughs) 
the same kind of prejudice still exists and it should be pointed out but uh, we must also realize that uh, satire is fine but uh, if we want to reach the people we also need to have a little bit of understanding of the trap that they might they find themselves caught in mm -hmm. yeah this is what I usually wind up trying to do because it's unavoidable that we all do come with some sort of bias to these kinds of debates and such but when I'm debating my opponents I always try to say okay here's the data if you think this isn't data or you think I'm misreading it show me where until then don't say anything about bias at this point and as you mm -hmm. can see I'm clearly trying to avoid evidence or something like that because then bias just becomes an excuse to avoid the data right right mm -hmm. and that's uh, in, in a footnote in his big magnum opus in the first volume mm -hmm. uh, Schmidt quotes someone who is uh, reporting on a on the discoveries of another person okay so we have Schmidt quoting a source quoting the original source uh -huh. and the source uh, uh, repudiates the original source simply because that person was a missionary right and therefore not to be given credibility and Schmidt says this kind of nonsense has to stop mm. well it hasn't stopped but uh, that's uh, the the data are there and the evidence is there and so uh, what is required of us is not to reform the academy mm -hmm. but what is required of us is to be faithful in our scholarship to represent truth mm -hmm. as we have been allowed to know it to be open to critique and uh, change our conclusions if the evidence demands it mm -hmm. and to be faithful in that yep. when and uh, then leave it up to God and culture <laughs> when you talked about missionaries that could raise an objection some people might think they say well you know you come to these cultures and you finally believe in a high God well maybe it's because people like Christians were already there and Christians gave them the belief of a high God and they just accepted that. I mean, how do we know that's not what happened? Well, because it's just not possible physically and uh, in other aspects. Let me mention here, I uh, referred to E.B. Tyler before. Okay. Uh, E.B. Tyler, who taught at Oxford for a long time. He never actually finished his degree, but uh, he became an endowed 
lecturer at Oxford, and uh, he was, a, of course, a great advocate of the evolution of religion. Mm-hmm. And his uh, most central book is probably the two-volume Primitive Religion. Uh-huh. And there are two editions of it. In the earlier one, dated in the 1870s, he refers to the phenomenon of monotheism among Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Uh, Various people have reported that various tribes worshipped one supreme god. One very well-known example is the Algonquin worship of Manitou, Kitching Manitou, uh, the creator god, the good spirit. And uh, there were a number of other examples that you can find in the book. Now, at that point in time, 1872 or so, uh, there was no particular challenge forthcoming to Tyler on his views and somebody had uh, earlier criticized the idea that this could be an original monotheism by these Indian tribes that their belief in one God undoubtedly came from contact with missionaries, Mm -hmm. Europeans. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, at that point, when Schmidt wrote his Primitive Religion, first edition, he said, no, that's just not possible. Uh, Logically, the idea that tribes a thousand miles away incorporated a full-blown monotheism into their culture a hundred years before there was any contact uh, just on the basis of a missionary teaching on the east coast and suddenly uh, the Cheyenne in the Great Plains by that point uh, start to worship Manitou and make him integral to the culture. That just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. It's even worse when you think of the Australian tribes because uh, they totally resisted the missionaries mm-hmm. and would not have anything to do with them. Almost to a person mm-hmm. and yet when the anthropologists finally got to know them it turned out that they held to a monotheism but that belief in this one God was restricted to the initiated males and uh, females and children didn't have knowledge of that Now, how can that possibly come from missionaries who who were preaching to both men and women and Mm -hmm. 
who were just being ignored or repudiated by the tribes. So, uh, th and that was the line of reasoning that Tyler used in the first edition of his primitive religion. Mm -hmm. Then J.C. Howard came out with his more in-depth reports on the actual religious culture of various Australian tribes. Now, it's interesting that uh, he sent those reports to the Ar uh, Anthropological Society in London, and Evie Tyler was president and vice president of that organization for a time, and oftentimes it was his duty to read the reports uh, to the society. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was confronted with all of this evidence of monotheism in Native American tribes and the Australian tribes and so forth. So in the second edition of uh, Primitive Religion, he simply made no reference mm. to that topic. Mm. He did not uh, talk about the possibilities of uh, monotheism in uh, uh, in America. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he he was no longer able to say, well, it must have been the influence. Well, he didn't say it was the influence of mis missionaries. He thought it was uh, part of their development. Mm -hmm. So then. A while later, he came out with an article entitled The Limits of Primitive Religion, and he used the same arguments that he had refuted before. Mm. All of a sudden, he, uh, he said, well, it must have been the influence of missionaries. Mm. And all the arguments that he had argued Against, he now argued for. Mm -hmm. But, of course, his earlier arguments that it didn't make any logical sense, didn't make any factual sense, still stood. Mm -hmm. well, I'd like to remind everyone that uh, this is the Deeper Waters podcast, and we are a listener-supported ministry. And we could really use your support. And if you got the newsletter, for instance, you know I'm again going to work on the Masters in New Testament at Johnston and we could really use your fundraising there at that point for instance it's I think we need to raise two grand just at the start here and if you think that's something worth pursuing I really would hope you'd consider it and just day to day expenses of keeping a ministry going and things of that sort it it's not free and if you consider this ministry something valuable, if you like the information that you get, please consider taking part. And, you know, if you can't donate financially, donate prayerfully, be praying for us, and donate with word of mouth. Tell people about the show, about the blog, share it with others, and just see what happens. Uh, if you are someone who is able to donate to us, and I suggest you go to my blog site at deeperwaters.ddns.net. And you'll see on the left, if you go down, 
Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now there's a link in there, and that will take you to Risen Jesus Ministry, the ministry of Mike Lacona, my father-in-law. Now, you can make a donation there, and if you'd consider becoming a monthly donor, that'd be even better. And when you make that donation, you contact me through email or Facebook, or you contact Mike or Debbie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Feeders. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They'll make sure we get it, and that ministry will be tax-deductible. You can also support us through Amazon by buying books that we talk about on the show, and by buying ebooks that I have written or co-written. The one that I have written is A Creed for the Ages, A Look at the Apostles' Creed, and then co-written books include Defining Inerrancy, Groundlets, Christian Answers for This Generation's Questions, and one I wrote with an atheist on God and Natural Disasters, a debate on that topic. And then there's also a jewelry store we got. Yes, we sell jewelry here. One of our friends of the ministry, Lena Clester, works with Premier Jewelry. And if you go to her site and you make a purchase, and then you contact her or me and say, hey, I made a purchase, I want to go to Deeper Waters, 25% of that purchase will go to us. So, I mean, guys, look at it this way. You can get your lady something very, very special, and if her love language is gifts, by the way, you've, you've done a really good deed right there at that point. She will be thrilled with you. So you can get her something very special, and you can donate to a ministry at the same time. And friends, I really hope you will consider this. It means so much to us also to know that you consider this ministry worth supporting and donating to. I mean, I, I, I agree with when It's a thrill whenever good things come into the ministry, compliments, donations, anything whatsoever. It, it helps remind us why we're out there. Now, when do you have a, any ministry organization you'd like people to donate to? I would like people to donate to you and Allie. Oh, thank you. You are... <laughs> Uh, many people understand your situation that uh, you have not had a solid income for quite a while mm-hmm. and I would like nothing more at this point for people to do with their money if they have any than to support you and your wife mm-hmm. in uh, in uh, subsisting mm-hmm. Uh, you give so much of your time and uh, you could spend a lot more time doing different things you could just feel sorry for yourself and uh, be mad at God instead Mm -hmm. in uh, difficult circumstances you're maintaining a clear testimony for the Lord and folks I think that needs to be supported mm. so I I would ask you if you're wanting to give anything as a result of this show please send it to uh, the various or by one of the methods that Nick has mentioned and I, I do thank you for that win and I would say to people who don't know when as well either of that uh, 
I've been very impressed and we got to speak together at a conference here in Northeast Tennessee or Northwest North Carolina area at Cherokee. You and I were together. We 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 were never on stage together, but <laughs> where we might have been for the Q and A part for the Q and A, yeah. Yes. yes, but we we had a wonderful time. We had one got to have a wonderful dinner together, and I, I think <laughs> you were there when I gave my talk on the apologetics of love. Yes, yes, yes. yeah, yeah. And I, now, folks, you also need to know that uh, for a time, Nick and I who were playing uh, uh, Words with Friends. <laughs> and uh, we played maybe, I don't know, 30 games, and Nick won 28 of those. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. And uh, so I don't know what you want to make of that, if anything. But, uh, well, you can, you can say this. Uh, that shows that Nick is highly intelligent mm -hmm. and so if you support his studies that money's not going to go to waste thank how's that you. Uh, thank you i really do appreciate that and yeah if you ever get back into playing that again i am always open for a game <laughs> yeah. now let's get back to schmidt with the belief in the one god mm -hmm. Here, now when he was looking at this i mean how how could he exactly tell that the, the monotheism was there and it hadn't really been changed because I mean, we see cultures in the past that are polytheistic and animistic and such I mean, maybe maybe they just did change into monotheism from animism how do we know it didn't go animism to monotheism instead of monotheism to animism well at this point is where I have to put the asterisk beside my statement the method is in rocket science. Mm -hmm. I mean, the basics of the method, I think, are pretty clear. That you look at the different cultures in a given region, and uh, it's possible to tell which one of those has changed more than others, and what their religions are, and so forth. But. Uh, to make it, to give it serious standing, uh, you have to get into the details. Mm -hmm. And you can't just deal with superficialities. And uh, now, in some cases, you may not be able to tell. Uh, South America is a case in point. Uh, the, the method does, the historical culture or cultural historical method does not yield good results for South America. Okay? And it's just not possible to establish a firm timeline of the relative ages of different cultures. So, having a method to establish truth does not mean that you have omniscience. You know, right. That's, that's, that's something that I just keep saying in all kinds of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Being able to speak one truth does not mean that I can speak all truths. 
mm-hmm. and I can know some things, but I can only believe others or suspend belief about others. And uh, so you, at that point, then you have to do as much homework as you can and look for uh, signs that may show you that uh, this particular culture is not as it was several hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are uh, remnants, possibly. Okay, I, let me say that again. They may be remnants that show that this culture has changed dramatically. Case in point, uh, the Lakota and uh, some other Native Americans whose way of life changed pretty drastically uh, with the arrival of the horse. Right. And uh, so we, we can reconstruct by looking at uh, forms that have persisted that uh, they uh, at one time their culture was more agrarian but uh, they did uh, hunt buffalo but then when they started to uh, find horses and tame them and use them it became more convenient apparently to switch back from a more agricultural economy to a hunting culture where the bison became uh, the focus of attention. Uh, That also meant then that the Lakota became uh, more migratory again. And if you have an agricultural economy, more or less going to stay in the same place but if you're uh, hunting then chances are you're going to move around more and so uh, migration of course then involved encounters with other tribes which were more settled and then uh, we see how those those tribes were affected by uh, the influence of the Lakotas and so forth. Uh, so, to the best of one's ability, one needs to be uh, open to the possibility there I- that there is change and that uh, the the movement is not always from the material less developed to the material more developed, but there can be a backwards movement mm-hmm. okay, it can be like with the Lakota the coming of the horse it can be because of <coughs> aggression by other people or because of diseases or whatever but on the whole there just is not evidence for a lot of regression. Mm-hmm. So far as there is evidence, uh, 
to characterize a uh, material culture of a certain people in a certain area. Uh, you just don't have uh, the the memories, the uh, uh, particular word that I can't think of now. The uh, traditions. The, no, uh, the uh, the residue, the residuals. Okay. I think that's uh, mm -hmm. the the residuals of a previous, previously more highly developed culture. Okay. Uh, and yeah, as I said, omniscience is beyond our ability. But uh, and this is another difference between us and uh, Schmidt's culture. In his day, the humanities and social sciences were uh, trying to emulate uh, the natural sciences and mathematics and so forth and trying to come up with apodictic conclusions mm. conclusions that uh, you know maintain logical necessity just like you can't have a round square mm. so your your own conclusions need to be logically absolutely necessary well uh, the very natural sciences themselves wound up shooting that down with the coming of uh, quantum mechanics and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we're much more inclined now to think in terms of the best conclusion, the most plausible conclusion, mm -hmm. which does not mean that there's a great amount of uncertainty, but it does mean that we're not talking about a something akin to purely logical deduction mm -hmm. and uh, so uh, we're, uh, we can say no we, we cannot rule out that in certain instances uh, what we're seeing now in a culture was regression mm -hmm. but uh, either way the evidence is all that we have to go on mm -hmm. uh, whether it's for or against and the evidence does not allow for a lot of regression in the cultures with which we are familiar. Mm -hmm. Well, um, when we we haven't got to say every argument in the book, of course, but we need to start getting down to some of the ever harder questions and the questions mm -hmm. more relevant to the Christian apart, Jack's community in some ways, and that's that uh, if. We're going to assume then that the case has been made that there was an original monotheism. How do we explain that? What is the best explanation that the data shows for that? The best explanation? Yeah. I mean, or what, the, the best use we can make of that? Yeah, I'm what, sure. what, yeah, pretty much. What hypothesis did Schmidt put forward that, that would explain why all these cultures had a belief in monotheism? Well, okay, Schmidt said, and I think this may be an answer to your question. If not, you'll need to ask it again. Now, for apologetic purposes, uh, he said, when we look at these 
tribal cultures, presumably representing the oldest human cultures on earth. We look at their belief in God and how it impacted their culture before they uh, moved away to lesser forms of religions. Mm-hmm. And if we look at them in terms of what they say themselves of how they arrived at that belief, mm-hmm. and how fundamental that belief was for them. Mm-hmm. It is a good hypothesis that they arrived at this conclusion because not only was uh, the existence of God a good explanation for creation, but also God must have revealed himself to them. Mm-hmm. That uh, We're not just talking about a God out of touch or a hypothetical God, but we're talking about a God who must have revealed himself. Mm-hmm. So halfway through his 12-volume magnum opus, der Ursprung, der Gottes Idee, uh, Schmidt says, okay, now I have finally reached my preliminary conclusion that these folks, the tribes that we're talking about, not only believed in a God, but they also claimed it came to them by revelation and uh, given the magnitude of the whole idea uh, that point is credible. Mm -hmm. So, uh, let me give you a quote there. Uh, He says, this is my translation of Schmidt The bottom line is that the reports we have from the adherents of the oldest religions themselves are not merely disinclined towards the supposition that the religions were created by seeking and searching human beings, rather worse yet, they do not even mention it with a single word. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... uh, the uh, and uh, let me let me read to you a few more quotes by Schmidt. Okay. Uh, and uh, a couple sentences out of my book, if you don't mind. Sure. When it came right down to it, Genesis remained authoritative for Schmidt and took precedence over paleontological discoveries which were totally ambiguous. Concerning biblical interpretation, he felt that the biggest question that needed to be addressed was whether Genesis 1 was a historical account or merely a personal confession of the writer to his faith in God as creator, and he cut through that issue quickly. Now, to quote him, Mm -hmm. Presently, it will appear that the second chapter of Genesis begins 
and continues uninterruptedly thereafter a historical presentation of the primitive period of mankind based on original sources. Would it not be strange, then, were the first chapter alone to lack historical and documentary authority? Furthermore, the necessary connection between the first and the second narrative is so evident as to make the position that continues Genesis 1 to be unhistorical less tenable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he believes that the original monotheism also contributes to the belief in a creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, uh, the belief in the one creator, as I said earlier, is tied to certain ethical norms. Mm-hmm. And uh, Schmidt makes the point, and uh, really expands on in his book, Divine Revelation, uh, which is available in English also, uh, it makes the point that these cultures, as backward as they may be, materially have high moral standards. Mm-hmm. And they believe in monogamy, and uh, as I said earlier, truth-telling, uh, not wanton killing, respecting other people's property, sharing with each other. Uh, there is a tribe, or there was a tribe, that in the late 19th century added something to their initiation ceremony. Mm-hmm. Okay, when adolescents were initiated into the secrets of the tribe, they added a ritual to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, these were uh, monotheists who had a high moral standards and they had the young people with the gesture grab their chests as though they're pulling out something and throwing it to the floor. Mm-hmm. And what that signified is they were supposed to rid themselves of the selfishness that they may have learned from the white colonialists who called themselves Christians. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, if you're thinking apologetically, monotheism provides a basis for uh, both public and private morality. Mm -hmm. Okay. uh, Again, if I can read from Schmidt here, something of such intense force must have come upon the most ancient beings in an encounter that became an all-encompassing destabilizing experience penetrating the entire being to its innermost core so that immediately due to its overpowering might it gave rise to the unity and comprehensiveness that we observe in these the oldest of religions Mm -hmm. and then he elaborates more on that Mm -hmm. so apologetically then uh, the bottom line is the Uh, oldest human cultures 
believed in a God who very nicely matches up in most of his attributes with the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Now, we need to be careful. Uh, the same thing can be said about Allah in Islam mm-hmm. or Ahura Mazda in Zoroastrianism mm-hmm. and so forth. That uh, you know, these views of God their, their views of God are very much like the biblical God. Right. But we need to be careful that we don't say in terms of contemporary practice they worship the biblical God. Right. And, uh, and some people have been getting a little bit over-enthusiastic mm-hmm. with, that, uh, with that idea. Mm-hmm. That uh, they have discovered uh, that at one point their culture worshipped one god, and so they immediately start to worshiping the god of the Bible by thinking of their national heritage god and uh, the worship and ritual and so forth and that's accorded to him and I don't think that's possible mm-hmm. okay, we can simply say that here we have tribes or cultures or whatever who bear strong testimony to the fact that God created the universe he created human beings and at one point they worshipped only him Mm-hmm. And uh, this God is not just an idea, but he came with moral expectations of his people. Mm-hmm. Now, if that isn't enough, you know, I, I don't know how how far... Well, let me say it another way. I, I just don't think that it's really possible to go further than that mm-hmm. and say uh, here we have evidence for the biblical God no right. we don't mm-hmm. okay. uh, the, the uh, God in various tribes has many of the same attributes but also has a lot of secondary attributes that do not coincide with the God of scripture mm-hmm which is obviously what you would expect. Right. That uh, there are cultural alterations. Mm-hmm. But I am perfectly satisfied with the idea that we can say with confidence that they all began with monotheism. And the important thing we can get from this is that it's not that monotheism is an aberration that's a late development but that rather the opposite it's animism and polytheism that are the aberration in many ways isn't it Uh, yeah no it's very interesting that the bible has a huge gap in the history of religions Mm -hmm. in Genesis 11 we have 
the Tower of Babel, mm -hmm. and the people are dispersed. In Genesis 12, we come to Abraham, who is called by God, and at that point, idolatry and paganism seems to have become the norm rather than the exception. Mm -hmm. So, once people had alienated themselves from the true God, apparently, you know, it, we can call it an aberration, but it was almost more the rule than the exception that uh, having uh, disowned God, they then went uh, into the worship of idols and other things. And, of course, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 1. Mm -hmm. you know, even though they knew God, they did not acknowledge him and started to worship the creature rather than the creator. Mm -hmm. But the Bible never talks about that process, except there in Romans 1, maybe, but it doesn't give us any description of people who are... Uh, somehow devising their own religion. It seems to be just an assumption that once the relationship with God is severed, people are going to uh, go for uh, uh, misunderstandings and, and misrepresentations and, uh, mm -hmm. as, as I said, false religions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but thing that we have to get is that somewhere back there there is still that one God and ultimately if we were being missionaries to these cultures it probably wise us to try to appeal to that one God like Def Paul did in Acts 17 definitely yeah definitely the, uh, and you know that applies not only to the cultures that somehow have retained monotheism but even those like the Kikuyu that I mentioned who worship Engai only every once in a while. Mm -hmm. It is still very much the case that you can uh, talk to... In fact, this, this is what missionaries do. Missionaries to the Kikuyu, for example. Uh, they, they use Engai as the name for God. Mm -hmm. Because even though in the uh, traditional culture of uh, the first part of the 20th century, and Guy was just uh, a sideliner to the animism taken by himself. Mm. He really had the attributes of God. He was just being ignored. Uh, the original uh, God of China was Shangdi, who was later uh, displaced by Tian or Heaven but Shangdi is still used in the Chinese New Testament uh, where our English says Lord the word in Chinese is Shangdi mm -hmm. it's not okay, God is a different word the generic word for God is Chen but uh, where it says Lord they, they use Shangdi so uh, yeah you can 
use the terminology, and missionary and indigenous people oftentimes do, but still, you have to be careful mm-hmm. not to establish a syncretism. Well, um, Wayne, we've uh, had an interesting conversation today, but unfortunately we have to be wrapping things up. Uh, if people have been intrigued and they want to find out more about you and your work, do you have a blog or a website or an email or some way people can find out about you and get in touch with you? Certainly. I am, of course, on Facebook. I have a website uh, which you can get to just by com. Mm-hmm. No spaces or anything, just W-I-N-C-O-R-D-U-A-N. I have a blog, which is uh, which I have not been faithful with for the last little while, and that is Win Cordwin. Again, just one word, lowercase. Dot Brave Journal. Mm-hmm. Brave as in. Uh, a valiant warrior mm-hmm. bravejournal.com mm-hmm. and uh, those would be the the best ways of best channels to make contact mm-hmm. yeah. my, my email is everywhere mm-hmm. there and uh, mm-hmm. so it's that the, it's Facebook and uh, uh, the website wincordon.com and uh, the journal uh, the, the blog wincordon.bravejournal.com mm-hmm. yeah. um, Do you have uh, any final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? Well, yeah, let me just say this never ever let us forget that whatever we do in scholarship, in our thinking, our reasoning skills of defending the truth of Christianity, that we are simply serving the greater cause of letting people see Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Our, our calling is not to establish a Christian culture or to inflict a Christian curriculum on secular schools our calling is first and foremost to present Jesus Christ to a lost world Mm -hmm. and whatever it takes feeding people uh, giving them shelter showing them love or answering their intellectual questions uh, parentheses apologetics these are all ways of trying to present a clear picture of the gospel and give people an opportunity to respond to God's invitation Mm -hmm. and also what hopefully this kind of material does is to help those who are Christians understand that they can believe with confidence mm-hmm. that uh, they can own up to 
the faith that they've been brought up with without conceding uh, uh, intellectual confidence. Mm -hmm. The book, go ahead. Uh, so I just want to say, let's, uh, I mean, it's great to be a part of it, but please, it's never an end in itself. It's mm -hmm. all there to serve the fundamental cause of having people trust in Christ. The book is called In the Beginning God, a fresh look of a case for original monotheism, and at the time of this recording, the paperback is available for 1705 and a Kindle version for 7.99. And Wynn, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you, Nick. It really was a pleasure. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Andy Bannister on talking about his book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off until next week. <laughs>